The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Nearly there, everybody. A couple more days. Welcome to Squawk Box. You're watching it with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. On this vote, the yeas are 230, the nays are 197, present is 1, Article 1 is adopted. So Donald Trump becomes the third U.S. president in history to be impeached after the House approves two articles charging him with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. That's what it is. They have nothing. They're the ones that should be impeached, every one of them. The Bank of Japan keeps policy unchanged with the Bank of England expected to follow suit later today. But Sweden is expected to finally ditch negative rates with a hike to wait for it, 0%. The Queen prepares to set out the government's programme for the second time in as many months, with Brexit and the NHS high on the agenda. Micron shares jump in after-hours trade as the chipmaker beats quarterly estimates and signals a recovery is coming in 2020 after a cyclical bottom in the second quarter. So, Andrew Johnson, not Andrew Jackson as I keep thinking myself, but Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, uh, the former 1868, the more uh, recent memory for, of course, Mr. Clinton as well. Donald Trump, now number three, the third U.S. president in history to be impeached. The House of Representatives passed two articles of impeachment against him with votes largely falling, yes, you guessed it, along very partisan party lines. Charged with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, President Trump is expected to face a Senate trial early next year, but not before congressional leaders square off to set the terms of the proceedings. NBC's Alice Barr has more from Washington. Tonight, Donald J. Trump becoming the third American president to be impeached. Article 1 is adopted. The final vote split along party lines, nearly every Democrat voting for two articles of impeachment, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. A great day for the Constitution of the United States. A sad one for America. It gives us no pleasure, no pleasure to stand here today. But President Trump's conduct has put our next election at risk. Every Republican voting against. As history unfolded in Washington, the president shared the results with supporters in Michigan, where he's campaigning for a second term. 229, 198, we didn't lose one Republican vote. Denying the black mark on his legacy and turning the tables on those who voted against him. Crazy Nancy Pelosi's House Democrats have branded themselves with an eternal mark of shame. And it really is. It's a disgrace. Republicans going down fighting, even as they knew Democrats had enough votes to impeach. Democrats insisting the vote was their constitutional duty and that they're safeguarding democracy for the future. When you see something that is not right, not just, not fair, you have a moral obligation to say something, to do something. 
The final House vote now recorded in the history books, but the final say on conviction lands with the Republican-controlled Senate, eager to begin the next chapter. Speaker Pelosi hinted tonight she might not immediately send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. That could derail Republican plans for a quick trial and acquittal. On Capitol Hill, Alice Barr, NBC News. Right, let's get to Kaylin Birch, global economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Kaylin, I'm, I'm going to apologise for what I'm about to say to our viewers and to you and to Karen. Uh, I'm, over, I'm over the impeachment process already because it is the most partisan thing I've seen. I don't know where this goes next. And I'm, again, I'm apolitical. I don't know what the Democrats hope to achieve from this. What's the game plan? Just give us your views, basically. Well, you're not the only one. I think everyone is tired of it. And it really has been remarkable how little this entire process has swayed the needle, both for supporters of Mr. Trump and 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 those who don't support him. We've seen his approval rating remain stubbornly around 42% to the population. Um, since really he entered office, impeachment hasn't nudged a bit. It all comes down to partisan <sighs> politics. Okay, let, let's look at this from two points of view as well. Um, we heard the president speaking, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. What is the game plan from the Democrats? What could they possibly gain from this as well? What could the candidates who want to challenge the president late 2020 gain from this? I think at this point, it probably all comes down to voter turnout. So the initial hesitance that we saw on Nancy Pelosi's part to avoid launching this and uh, the impeachment inquiry in the first place was a for fear of galvanizing Mr. Trump's base. The process has done that. Um, but I think the political calculus changed when the, the Ukraine call came out because it was a clear cut case. And it seemed like potentially it could get it as much of a lift to Democratic candidates as it evidently would for Mr. Trump and his own support base. You say clear-cut case, others would say a political stitch-up. True, true. But it's, you'd say, compared to, for example, the Russia investigation, which became very amorphous, very confusing, it spawned a number of different investigations. It became a very difficult and unclear case to make. What was Mr. Trump being charged with, for example? This was very straightforward from the beginning. Whether or not you agree, it's straightforward. So the next hurdle, uh, the Senate, and we've already heard from the top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who says uh, there's no chance his chamber will remove Trump. So effectively, you need 20 Republicans to cross the aisle and stand behind the Democrats and not lose any Democrats in the process. So what happens from here then, in your view, if we're not going to get any movement in the Senate? No, and I think we'll probably see a quick trial. There's been some question about delaying the transfer of the articles of impeachment to the Senate to force McConnell to accept a lengthier and more detailed trial. I think that's probably unlikely. It would just turn into an even uglier process than we have so far. So I'd expect a very quick trial. Um, and probably, then what? <laughs> and, then, and then it really does come down to 2020. So I think, again, this has galvanized Mr. Trump's space. We saw an initial boost in fundraising, 8.5 million raised by the Trump re-election campaign in the two days solely after the impeachment inquiry was launched back in September. And that remarkable figure in itself, the largest two-day fundraising haul throughout the entirety of the campaign, included 50,000 new donors to the campaign. Now, we have to remember that his approval rating hasn't budged from 42%. These probably aren't new supporters of Mr. Trump. They're 50,000 newly mobilized supporters of Mr. Trump. So that will have a big bearing on voter turnout There's for 2020. There's a lot of politicking around impeachment, it seems, and even for the Democrats. And you saw the Democratic president candidate yesterday mm-hmm. voting uh, that she was present, neither a yes or, or no, but, but present. Yes. Great point, yeah. yeah.
Yeah. What did you make of that? And was this purely about trying to put her name on the map ahead of the presidential election? I suspect. I think she's at a little bit of a disadvantage there. She hasn't been able to budge her numbers, really. We see Biden, Sanders, Warren, and, and most recently Buttigieg. Even Bloomberg has kind of only brushed above 5% in national polling. Well, the big problem with Tulsi Gabbard is, is she, she's the wrong generation, it seems to be. Mm. I mean, she's... Uh, 38, I think, give or take. She's born in 1981. Um, they all seem to be septuagenarians on both <laughs> sides. You've got to be 70 plus to be... What's going on? We, what what happened to the spirit of Tony Blair or JFK or all these younger politicians? They're all... I mean, it, why are we going for such an elderly generation? And, and do Americans even, prefer that now? I don't know. Even within that elderly generation, Mr. a Bloomberg, lot of them are Mr. still Biden. outsiders. Bloomberg is a businessman. Sanders is an iconoclast. Warren <laughs> is definitely a more progressive thinker, even if she's more of a technocrat, really. Um, I think it's been a long progression. Okay. Trump is a bit more of an outsider. Obama was already a bit of an outsider. Even McCain branded himself as a maverick, and, and, and George W. Bush wanted yeah. to be an outsider. We've been moving further and further along. For George outside was significantly younger when he entered that the, uh, well, the White House rather than, dare I say, gentlemen of, uh, and ladies of a certain age. Karen, <laughs> you're going to come in. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in. We've got some news crossing from China, and this is on uh, tariff exclusions, so a uh, rollback of uh, some of the tariffs on American goods. And China's new tariff exclusions for certain U.S. goods are effective from the 26th of December, so coming into uh, force from Boxing Day is effectively what's crossing the statement. And also the exclusions will apply to six different products in a statement. So uh, the rollback, as you see, of course, a phase one trade deal on the table between the US and China. All right, okay, I found the list of courtesy of, um, I think it's Wiki actually, sorry. Um, the five youngest presidents to enter the White House when they were elected. Okay, <laughs> how, how many can you get? Ooh, Come I've on, you're JFK the expert. At about 44. Who'd you go? You went for JFK. JFK was number two. He wasn't the youngest. He was 43 years old when he was elected in 1960. Mm -hmm. Reagan? Who oh, was Reagan? Reagan ancient. Was he ancient, ancient by then? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Obama would have been in the younger class. So Bill, Bill's in there, oh. 46. He was number three. Right. Bill Clinton, this is, of course, formerly the, the impeached early days? Bill Clinton, the <laughs> aforementioned. What? what about in the early days? Because you've reached Come on, think of career most, maturity. One of the most recent. Barack, oh, yeah, the director. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Barack, 47. He, he sneaks in at number five. So we're missing two. One from the 1860s and one from, the from 1900. Because you yeah. get career maturity earlier, so yeah, therefore you would be earlier. Right, OK. So Ulysses S. Grant, the former general, of course, a uh, union yeah. general. Uh, he was 46 when elected in 1868. And we're missing, we're missing one from the turn of the century. Like <laughs> Otherwise known as Robin Williams in uh, Night at the Museum. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, the, the galleries. God, God, you guys are good at pub quizzes in the gallery. I never thought that. I always thought you didn't know what you were doing. Um, so Theodore Roosevelt, 1901, was 42. JFK, 43. Bill Clinton, 46. Ulysses S. Grant, also 46. And Barack Obama, 47. There you go. It's Christmas. We can do pub quizzes. And Kaylin, you're staying with us for many more pub quizzes throughout the rest of this hour. Coming up on the show, it's decision time for central bankers in the UK and Sweden. Yes, Sweden. Wow. You could get 0% rates if you're lucky. Uh, plus, stay tuned for an exclusive interview uh, with the New York Fed president. And sizzle, just, just for a few of you out here. A bit of sizzle later in the show, getting to know the man behind the mask. I think that's a nod to the mask of Zorro, isn't it? Does anyone know who that gentleman is? His actor, Antonio Banderas, uh, starring his latest movie. He opens up about something close to his heart.
If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. More record activity on Wall Street as we saw fresh intraday levels clocked up for the S&P and the Nasdaq. By the finish, it was just the tech-heavy index holding on to those peak levels. Um, what a run it's been so far this year. 33% higher year to date for the Nasdaq. Uh, not quite the 38% it clocked up back in 2013, but still a very decent year and the best one since 2013. Uh, so what was gaining in session? Well, real estate, a uh, safe part of the market, was out in front again, about 1.3%. Industrials, financials, uh, some of the laggards, though. And this is a nod to how far we've travelled on phase one trade deal on some of the better data that's been crossing in recent weeks. And there's a level of caution that has come into the mix, I think, because of those dynamics, not necessarily impeachment. That's a curious one as we start out our show today talking about impeachment proceedings, all eyes on Washington. But at this point, investors are not doing much with uh, the state of play around impeachment. I want to take you to yields. We've seen now uh, widening out in spreads between the 2 and the 10 at this point. 1.91% where we're trading on the 10-year yield. 1.63, the level on the two-year. And uh, curious as we spent some parts of this year concerned about yield curve inversion that had happened, whether that was a, a signaling function for a recession. But now the level's widening out, as you can see. Asian markets. And we've travelled back from some of the highs that we've had on these markets. Markets. We've pulled back from a one and a half year peak on these markets and red splashing up from the Chinese markets, modestly south on the Shanghai Composite. The Hong Kong market shedding about 130 plus points, almost half of a percent. And you can see flatline for the Cosby in South Korea. The opening calls here in Europe. Uh, this is a look at uh, how we are traveling across the boards as we also watch what's playing out on sterling. We've now cracked the 131 handle on concerns around some form of a, a cliff edge scenario if there's no deal with the European. Union and uh, the UK stock market as a result. Well, we're up two tenths of a percent yesterday. Any drop in sterling positive for the dollar owners, and you can see the market just chasing some slim ranges this morning with the green arrow. Elsewhere, a little bit uh, choppy across the board. Mixed signals for the core on the European markets versus what you're seeing on the periphery with Italy showing up one green arrow, 42 on the boards at this point. Steve. Karen, who is the oldest BOJ gov- No, I'm only joking. Uh, no. I, I genuinely was going to try and put it in, but I didn't have I'm enough time. I'm lucky if I can just come up with one BOJ governor. Than oh, oldest. wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, whether Mr. Karodasan is, 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 is doing well, that's the question. And um, he's certainly been trying long enough. Anyway, look, the Bank of Japan, this is where we were going with it, regardless of my pub quiz and mentality at the end of the week. It's not quite the end of the week. Uh, the BOJ has held monetary policy steady, keeping short-term interest rates minus zero minus those figures, and long-term rates around the zero level. The central bank confirmed its view of a continued moderate expansion for the economy, but warned of a potential drop in industrial production due to natural disasters and a continuing fallout from trade war tensions. Well, the UK and Sweden will also announce interest rate decisions today, despite inflation figures falling below uh, its 2% target. The Bank of England is seen staying on hold after a decisive general election eased political uncertainty. 
Ah, I don't know if it has believed. Um, my producer who wrote that obviously thinks that it's eased political uncertainty, perhaps within the UK, but certainly with our close friends in Europe, maybe not. Anyway, we'll come to that. Sweden's Riksbank is expected to break ranks from Japan and the ECB. Were they all together? Were they collegiate beforehand? Uh, anyway, by raising interest rates above the zero mark, fearing the long-term effects of negative policy. Nice of them to start worrying about the long-term effects of negative policy now, isn't it? Why weren't they worried about it when they were still cutting? I think they have been worried for a while, but they've been stuck in the crisis that uh, has swept globally and pushed many we'll central banks into that. more action. Weren't you on set with me when we had Stephanie Ingves here as well, the governor of I the Bank. I wasn't, Bricks but Bank. I did spend time with the deputy central bank governor in Davos. But even quite recently, he was robust in his defense of the rate policy. But, uh, yes. But you, you get to meet some very nice well, the people in your cosy set in, in Davos, In January last year, so 12 months ago, was that they expected to be more active this year. That was the message. We're yeah. going to be doing more and investors should be watching very closely. But what happened? Not, not a lot until probably this point, because they've not had the ability to. ECB has been more accommodative, more stimulatory over the course of 2019, so that's meant uh, the Riks Bank hasn't been able to be. Uh, meantime, let's just talk about the Fed. As, uh, the Fed cut rates three times this year, in case you missed it, but voted to hold in last week's policy meeting. Speaking to CNBC's Steve Leesman, Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams backed the decision. He said there would have to be a more substantial change in outlook to prompt a policy adjustment. <coughs> With the uh, rate cuts that we did this year, I think we've uh, created a situation where monetary policy is accommodative. It is supporting growth. And I think that that's a good position for, uh, you know, given what's going on in the economy. In terms of what would cause us to change the current stance of policy, I think it would, again, be a, a material change in the, in the economic outlook. I can't point to one or two things in particular. I would point to this idea that maximum employment price stability is really important. We want to see the labor market remain strong. We want I want to see the inflation rate moving back to your 2% goal on a sustained basis. So those are the things I'm really focused on. I'll ask two policy questions. Um, first, is it a policy of the Federal Reserve right now to allow inflation to overshoot for some period of time? So what I, what I view the policy of, of, of the FOMC really is, is to make sure that we, have to, uh, as we achieve our 2% symmetric goal. And that means that you, inflation, you know, we want to be around 2%. Of course, that means sometimes a, a little bit, somewhat above, sometimes below, but really on a consistent basis, be at our 2% objective. Depending on economic circumstances, you know, inflation might be a little soft uh, uh, relative to that. and other cir circumstances, maybe a little bit higher. But really see this notion that we're, you know, on average around 2% inflation, sometimes a little bit above, sometimes below. And that's what I think the word symmetric means. The recent rate cuts you had were described by the chairman as insurance cuts. Back in 1998, when you took out insurance cuts, you took those cuts back. Are these the kind of cuts you need to take back if those uh, risks that you were insuring against go away? Well, I think that, you know, there are both the, kind of the risks and uncertainties that we've talked about, but there's also global economic developments. As in the current circumstance, global growth has slowed. Some of those risks have actually turned into reality. Mm -hmm. We've seen downgrades to global growth from, say, from the IMF and others, uh, and I think those are things that have shifted uh, the landscape that we're operating under. So I don't see those uh, reversing anytime soon. And as I said, although we've seen some positive uh, uh, developments in terms of the uncertainties, I still 
still think there's quite a few uncertainties out there. So I don't have any prediction about reversing or uh, mm -hmm. any other policy actions. Again, I think that where we've got monetary policy is in the right place, supportive of growth, supportive of achieving our goals. Kaylin Birch is a global economist, the Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, right, central banks, what the US is doing and what the rest of the world is doing, perhaps slightly divergent as, as well. What do you see the role of central bankers in 2020 uh, in terms of how different it's been from them in the previous three years when we've had these very low rates elsewhere in the world? And of course, the US now talking about its mid-cycle of judgment. I mean, in the round, a central bank is going to take a, a bit of a step back in 2020? Yeah, I think a lot of the negative um, influence that we saw starting to appear in 2019 will probably start to ease. We expect economic growth in Europe to at least plateau, probably tick up slightly in 2020 because a lot of that kind of manufacturing slowdown became so apparent this year and that was followed by negative sentiment and obviously the kind of uncertainty about where the U.S.-China trade war was going to end, and that had a lot of impact in 2019. So for Europe, we, again, expect more um, more stimulus next year, uh, more quantitative easing, but without the kind of uncertainty we face this year. It's a relative game, though. I mean, 2019, it was quite challenging for Europe in the sense that you had three rate cuts from the U.S. Yes, at definitely. a time when you had economy growing much faster than some other economies. So if right. you were a central bank and you were looking at economies across the board that you manage, and effectively you've got slow growth and another central bank elsewhere cutting, you're also forced to go into even more stimulatory territory. So what happens yeah. next year if we're not going to get as many rate cuts from the Fed, and that is a big assumption, one at this point, uh, potential or none, does that mean there is just uh, less need for other central banks to also cut and race to the bottom? Yes, that's possible. And, you know, ironically, last year we saw, again, relatively firm growth in the U.S., three rate cuts and the president calling for uh, rates at zero percent, which must have terrified a lot of people in Europe. Um, but so on the whole, we think there'll probably be one more cut by the Fed next year, mainly as this U.S.-China trade deal that was agreed in December fails to deliver the economic boost that the market effectively anticipated that it would. Why does it fail to deliver the boost? Because uh, from the outset, there seems to be a better feeling of animal spirits uh, right across markets uh, flashed up a Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey of fund managers as well. Why does it not translate right. to animal spirits in the C-suite? So I think essentially we won't see a worsening of economic sentiment, for example. That last round of tariffs that was due to come in in mid-December would have primarily affected direct finished consumer goods. So it would have been the first time that American consumers felt immediately the impact of tariffs. Again, a 15% hike would be quite considerable. Um, that would have worsened the economic picture considerably compared to where we are now. This baseline is now preserved by the deal that we have. The problem that we face in the U.S. is that growth is being shored up by consumer spending, which we expect to remain strong. The drag on that is weak export growth and low investment, actually a contraction in investment in the second and third quarter that we saw. And that investment contraction is due to the fact that businesses don't know if the U.S. is going to have a 25% tariff, a 15% tariff, or a 0% tariff on a variety of goods as uncertainty remains around the U.S. trying to trade second round and third round deals. As long as there's uncertainty, it's a lot to ask U.S. businesses to make major five or 10 year investments in Taiwan or China or South Korea or the United States. So I think we won't see that turnaround in investment until we have clarity, and that probably won't come until 2021. When do we start worrying about credit quality? I mean, it seems to me that central banks 
are primarily worried about credit supply at the moment. They want to see demand for credit mm -hmm. pick up so that they can say, we've done our job. We've put enough liquidity in the system, whether it's negative rates, whether it's been the money operations, whether it's been Teltro's, uh, to see growth in credit. But I'm more worried about the quality of that credit as well, given the fact that trillions of dollars, $250 trillion plus in the global system, a large amount of that has been lent in the last three to five years mm -hmm. at historically low rates. Should we not start worrying about the quality of whether it's household, municipal, corporate, corporate non-financial, and dare I say it, sovereign as well? Yeah, it's a really good point, to be honest. And I think we face a particularly kind of important um, concern over that in the US, especially because mm. we've seen a sharp rise in lower rated debt, particularly corporate debt um, that we consider the the leveraged loan market, if you will, that's now um, kind of at record highs in terms of the volume um, and record lows as far as I, you know, kind of recent history in terms of the quality of that debt. Um, now, the European debt profit I haven't looked at as carefully, and I think the lending rate obviously hasn't been as firm as it has been in the US in the past so in terms of the volume of buildup, mm -hmm. um, uh, but the need there to stimulate lending, especially in Germany, for example, the countries that have been hit most hard by the manufacturing slowdown does raise that question. But I think the focus now is on growth and stimulating activity. Again, with this interest rate differential, the, the impetus in Europe is on growth, but there are major no, questions No, we didn't talk there. about the BOE. Just quickly, yes, we've run out of time. No move in 2019, is that right? Sorry, for no, the, move, no move for the Bank of England in 2019, 2020? Yes, I don't think we'll see any significant growth um, that would allow right. the bank to, to move. I think it's going to be another year of wait and see. Okay. We think growth will stay around 1.3%. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.